There was an ancient pastor leader, I'm sure you're familiar with his name, St. Augustine, who wrote a book called The City of God. And in that book, he, he says these words. Two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly, by love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly, by love of God, even to the contempt of self. Let's pray. Lord, I ask this morning that you would be with us. Draw us close to you so that we would see the radiance of your glory and by that light we would see our failings. We would see the areas of our life that we are pursuing self over you. We seek our own kingdom. We seek our own desires first and we ask that you would add everything to those things. Forgive us, Lord. Instead, this morning, let us sit under your word. Let us feel the weight of it. But let us also remember, as the one who rules all things, you hold everything in your hand and you will right wrongs. You will draw back your people wherever they've been scattered to. Like the good shepherd, you will gather your sheep into your flock and you will bring us to a place of a glorious inheritance, a pasture where every desire of our heart will be satisfied because there our shepherd and king will be. And to that we say thank you and amen and amen. If you have a Bible, flip over to Micah chapter 2. We are working through this minor prophet who is riding to the kingdoms, plural, the, the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, and to the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. And particularly chapter 2, he's going to be focusing in more on Judah, the southern kingdom. This is an area that he, Micah, was actually from. And so in these verses, Micah chapter 2, we read these words. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your neck, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day, they shall take up taunt songs against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changed the portion of my people. He has removed it from me. Through the apostate, he has allotted our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people 
have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robes from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses and their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go. For this is no place to rest because of the uncleanliness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter winds and lies saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. He would be a preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like the flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. I want to give you a little bit more of some of the historical context of this before we dive into this. If you would be reading through after the Exodus in the scriptures, Eventually, the people come into the promised land in the book of Joshua, who is the now leader after Moses has passed on. And in Joshua chapter 14 to 21, as they are uh, reigning over, have more occupation over more of the land, God has them cast lots. This tribe will have this land, this tribe will have that land, and God reminds them, this land is mine but I am graciously giving it to you so that it would provide and be a blessing for you, your inheritance. In the law, actually before the land is even theirs, God has already laid down structures to try to keep property land in a family. If you were to sell it, you were to sell it to someone who was in your family. And if that was the situation eventually you would be able to buy it back or the year of jubilee would happen and things would get shuffled back to the way God has established them. But by the time Micah shows up on the scene, land barons are in Judah. I realize most of you probably aren't land barons. But the rebellious heart of those people still rages within us today. And that's what we're looking at here. I know that there's some weightiness to the book of Micah, but I I also want you to know there's hope in it. But this morning we want to look at rebellion's evil aim. We want to look at what rebellion seeks after, what it pursues. In church, rebellion's evil aim is self. As the people of Judah rebelled, casting off their call to be faithful and obedient to God, they they don't want him as king. The throne isn't empty in their life. Instead, there's a new king crowned on the throne in their life, and that king is themselves. They want their way, they want their desires, they want their things. They are pursuing after their comforts, their passions. Those things reign supreme. And the people in Micah chapter 2, specifically the wealthy and powerful, will go at any length, use any means possible to get what they want. And what they want was other people's stuff. 
It didn't matter who they took advantage of. There was no concern for God's call to live righteously, to walk humbly, to seek justice, and to do good. Instead, we read in verse 1, that they chose deceit over truth. They're in their beds scheming and planning. So that in the morning they can use their, their influence in the courts. That's when the courts met in the city gates. In the morning time is when those things would happen. And so they've made plans to manipulate the situation to get what they want. And they use their influence to do it. And then we read in the next verse that instead of being satisfied and content with the things that God had granted them, they covet other people's things. They took fields and homes. These are brothers and sisters. The people, the heirs, the sons of, of Jacob. They didn't care who they displaced. Instead of brotherhood, instead of caring for family, instead of caring for the, the sojourner, the widow, the orphans, they behave like enemies, pillaging and depriving families of God's splendid gift, the land he gave them, their inheritance. The wealthy people of Judah were actually living and functioning more like Assyria and Babylon. Assyria was the, the superpower that was growing at that time. And what you would do if you were a superpower is you would take over the lands next to you. And you would push those people out and you would disperse them. You didn't care. Their land is now your land. And that is exactly how the people of Judah were functioning towards other people in Judah. Like I said, I, I know most of you maybe aren't land barons. Maybe there's one or two of you hiding out there. I don't know you yet. And if so, let's talk real estate. Let's get together. Let's figure things out. Why? Why are you pursuing all of these things for yourself? What's the aim? What's the goal and the desire there? We have to check our hearts. Is our heart in rebellion against God because the pattern you see throughout scripture is those who violate the law of God always end up harming others. Always. Again, I say I know most of us aren't land barons. But examine your heart. What's your first thought? Is it of yourself is your highest priority your success, your joy, your comfort, your rest? Do you manipulate situations? You know, you kind of leave off a bit of truth so that it, it puts you in a better light so you can get a little bit further ahead of the competition, also known as brothers and sisters in the faith. Do you, do you think of others? Are you so laser-focused that it's you, that it's all that is in your heart. When we are engulfed by the green eye monster of jealousy, it breeds discontentment. And let's be honest, all of us battle that sin. Some of us, men, maybe it manifests in big ways and it really rustles in us. But all of us, from time to time, battle discontent. Battle covetousness, battle jealousy. If only I could have what she has. Then, if only this would be allotted to me. 
Church, sinful rebellion always has yourself at the center. I want, I deserve your withholding from me. And so we sin. Every sin is a decision to place you at the center and not God. All sin is committed to serve self. Why do you tell the white lie? Because you don't want that person to think wrongly of you. Or you don't want to get in trouble. Why do we steal? Because we think if I have it, I will be happy. Every sin. We chase it down because we think of us first. You can look at this passage and you can consider it in thinking, wait a minute, these are, these are Jewish people. These are people who, who know God. These are the people of, of Judah. They were supposed to be the ones that were faithful to the faith. They were supposed to be the ones that, that kept you know, worshiping the one true God. How could these people, the ones who have Jerusalem, the ones who have the temple, the ones who haven't corrupted it, how could these people think what they're doing is fine? Have you ever thought that? I think about that often because I see the problem manifesting over and over and over again. How could they be so self-centered thinking the Lord is happy with what they're doing? The text reveals a glimpse of this. And the reason is because they sat under false preaching. Self-serving preaching is dangerous, church. Self-serving preaching, preaching that puts you at the center, that puts man at the center, is dangerous. Take a look here at verse 6 from Micah. He says, the, the, the people, it's in quotes here, the people are saying to Micah, do not preach. Thus they preach, right? They're, they're saying it over and over and over again. Stop saying these things. What else are they saying? They're saying one should not preach such things, Micah. Disgrace will not overtake us. We're the people of God. Stop saying all these bad things about us. God loves us. He's never going to do any of these things. Stop preaching. Don't call out sin. Don't say that God's offended by my actions. How dare you make me feel bad about myself, Micah? Isn't this kind of preaching that we still hear today often? This man-centered, self-serving preaching is what rebels are drawn to, but it's dangerous because it never convicts and it never condemns sin as sin. Instead, it gives false hope and false security. This type of preaching flows out a soft or weak theology. I call it that because it removes the truth that rustles the feathers. It skips over the inconvenient parts of scripture. It preaches part of the truth. The parts that are easy to swallow. Who doesn't want to be blessed by God? I remember meeting a non-believer who I was working with at that time. And as we were having conversations, you know, we found out I was a believer and found out I'd been in ministry and all these other things. And and as we were talking, he said, you know, if God was real, that would be awesome. 
And I was like, wait, I'm confused with where you're going here. Because in his mind, if God is real, since God's loving and kind and gracious, he'll bless me because I'm a pretty good dude. Which then, of course, he you know, says, but of course, God isn't real. It's amazing that someone who doesn't believe in God would have no problem sitting under teaching that says, you're amazing, you're great, God loves you. He wants awesome things in your life. Don't worry about who you are or what you've done. They preach part of the scriptures. I'll show you some examples of maybe some passages that were maybe used at that time. If you have a Bible, flip over to Exodus chapter 34. Take a look here at verse 6. I want to point out here, this self-centered, this self-seeking preaching is dangerous, but it's not void of Scripture. They do use Scripture. In Exodus 34, verse 6, we read these words. The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins. Period. Close your Bible. Don't look any further. That's scripture. That's true. That's something we we should hold to and, and cling to and say, yes, that's my God. But let's finish reading the rest of verse 7. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's a bummer. I don't want to hear that. I mean, one of my all-time favorites, and I put that in quotes because I mean it so sarcastically, is a passage that I hear often when people are going through struggles, and they'll say, I know the plans that God has for me, plans to prosper me, not to harm me, but to give me hope in a future. But they didn't read the few verses that happened a little bit earlier when God says that to the people who aren't even in the promised land, they've been in exile, they're now in Babylon, and God says, don't listen to the false prophets who are telling you that that's what we crochet on pillows and that's what we drink from our mugs that have that verse where God says marry off your daughters because you're going to be in exile for a long time we skip that part this all is scripture it's all there one more passage I'd love to point us to is from Jeremiah chapter 6 Verse 14 and 15, Jeremiah speaking of these false prophets and priests. Verse 14 says, they have healed the wounds of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace. It's, it's almost like God is saying, your arm is severed, and they put a Band-Aid on it, saying, you're good. It's all right. But then the prophet continues saying, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abominations? No, they were not ashamed. They did not know how to blush. They weren't even embarrassed by their sin. Therefore, they shall fall amongst those who fall. And at the time I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. 
This kind of preaching, this self-serving preaching continues to echo from churches today. It wasn't just a problem for Micah and the people in his day. No one likes when sin is called out. I'm a pastor and I hate when my wife brings up Jesus when I'm mad at her. Because I want to be right. I'm focused on me. You get out of the way. Me. Why do you got to bring Jesus into this? And convict me of sin. No one likes to be convicted. It's not popular. We all want the gracious grandfather in the sky to turn a blind eye to all the evil things we do. We want to think God only wants us to be healthy, wealthy, popular, powerful, wise, and have a smooth life. I know how. I know the secret. I know how to make Midland Free Church bust at the seams. Preach in a way that panders to man. Preach towards people's selfish hearts. Take a look at verse 11. Talking about this preaching, Jesus, excuse me, God says, if a man should go about uttering wind and lies, right? Just flowy language, deception, half-truths, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. He would be the preacher of this people. If, if, if someone would go about preaching about ease and, and, and life and sunshine and rainbows, and, and if you would just believe in God, everything would be perfect in your life and you'll have no problems, that would be a person for these people. Smooth the edges. Focus on a single attribute of God. I mean, everybody knows God's love, right? Put man at the center. Turn God into the genie that you just rub that lamp so that God will give you every wish and every desire of your heart. God is loving, yes. God is gracious, yes. He is patient, yes. He is merciful, yes. But he is a holy, holy, holy God and he hates sin. And if you don't think so, you skip chapter three of the Bible and you've missed everything to the very end of the book of Revelation. He loves you enough that he wants to deal with your sin. He doesn't want me to preach sunshine and rainbows to you. He wants me to preach in a way that he wanted his prophets to speak in a way that would be a clarion call and say, stop forgetting who I am and come back to me. You want my forgiveness, but you don't want me. You want my mercy, but you don't want me. You want my grace, but you don't want me. How will you get any of these things if you don't have me? God is omniscient. They plot in the evenings from their bed as if God can't see through some brick and martyr. God sees all. God is good and just, and he will deal with his rebels. I don't know who you are, but I think all of us at times have misused scripture to justify or excuse our sin. 
I know it's not popular to talk about this stuff, but it's in the Bible. It's biblical. Take a look here at verse 3. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster, or it could literally say devising evil. It's not saying that God is evil. Certainly he's not, but he's saying is, if you continue to do these things, I have a purpose and a plan, and it will be counted as evil by you because you will not like what I will do. And there will be no escape from it, he says. You can't remove your neck. You might say the noose is already snug. It's amazing that the very people who were stealing land and misusing power and influence to get land would call out to God and say, He has taken our fields. The scariest part is in verse 5 where he says, you'll have no cast line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. He was saying you'll have no part of the people of God. That's what's in store for you if you continue this way. Not a popular message. But I pray you hear it. Because it breaks my heart to know that there are any of you out here listening this morning who think you can go on sinning, go on rebelling, go on putting yourself at the center and think God's fine with this. Because there's a couple verses I can pull out of context. Because God's loving and gracious. It breaks my heart. So I pray, hear this. God is for you, but more importantly, he is for himself because that is your greatest good, is more of God, not more of you. So hear this. Consider your thoughts. Consider your actions. Consider what you do. What is your aim? We're called to preach the full counsel that's why I preach a book like Micah, which isn't an easy book. But I preach it because it's the word of God and there's still hope here. Friends, not every knee had bowed to the false religion that was being preached there, couched in Jewish faith. Not every person surrendered to their base sinful desires. There was a remnant, a faithful remnant If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll find that this idea of a remnant carries through the Old Testament. It even carries through into the New Testament. The remnant are those who are faithful to God. They continue to trust him. They continue to seek after him because in God alone, salvation is found. The prophet Isaiah cries out concerning Israel these words, though the numbers of the son of Israel may be as numerous as the sands of the sea. Only a remnant of them will be saved. So before I progress, let me clarify two things here. First, I don't have sufficient time to get in all to the theology of the remnant. If you want to talk more about remnant and your view and and, and other things like that, I would love to sit and talk with you. I love that kind of stuff. Let's get together. That's the first thing I wanted to clarify. Second, and most importantly, especially to this text and to our life, I'm going to clarify this point here. 
being part of the remnant does not mean you will not experience pain. It does not mean you will be free from all trials. It does not mean everything will go the way that you want. Because the remnant that we're going to be looking at here has already experienced some of these things before the fullness of Micah's prophecy even comes to fruition. The Assyrians do come in and they destroy cities. In fact, one of the cities that Micah talks about is his hometown as being leveled. They would see, uh, set up sieges around the city of Jerusalem seeking to starve out the people. And as you read in some other biblical texts or even some extra biblical texts, it was not a fun time for the people who were in the city. And eventually the Babylon kingdom would rise up, smash the Assyrians, and would pull down the walls of Jerusalem and sack the city. And many people would be dead. And many people would be cast out. And many people would be sent into exile, including the remnant. Just want to clarify that. I know you're thinking like, wait, I thought we were getting to the good part. It's coming. Where's the hope? It's right here. Church, the remnant's hope and our hope is in God's shepherd king. Take a look here at verses 12 and 13. Jesus is in Micah right here. God says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like the flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and they pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. And that's when the church says... Look, I just went through a whole lot of heavy stuff, and we just got to Jesus, and you guys are like, amen. (laughs) God hasn't forgotten his remnant, and he will not forsake them. He has promised to gather them. How is he going to do it? He's going to do it through his Messiah. He's going to do it through his anointed one. That's all that Messiah means. He's going to do it through his shepherd king. Speaking of the Messiah, speaking of this shepherd king, again, another prophet, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11, Isaiah says this, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. Ezekiel 34, verse 23, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. How can Ezekiel write that when David has already been dead for years? Micah gives us a hint. Flip over to Micah chapter five. If you're not familiar with the book of Micah, you are probably familiar with this verse. Micah chapter five, verse two. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to rule in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. 
Bethlehem's the city of David. It's, it's where the line of David comes from. God is saying, from you, O Bethlehem, you small town, one is gonna come, who? One who will shepherd all of my people Israel. And who is this one? He's from of old, from ancient of days. That's Old Testament language for saying he has always existed. Gee, I wonder who Micah's talking about there. The remnant hope is God's shepherd king. His name is Jesus, the one who would be born in Bethlehem. That's the verse that the wise men go and say to the king, where's this new one who is born? And the king says, I don't know what you're talking about. And calls in all of the, you know, the, the religious leaders, the educated folks, scribes there. And they said, there's a prophecy that says that the king would come from Bethlehem. That's the verse they're talking about. Didn't know it would be a Christmas message, but here it is. Christmas is about a shepherd king who will gather the sheep from all the corners of the world. He will protect them because they're the sheep of his fold. That's what a good shepherd does. He's going to provide for them by bringing them into his pasture. The shepherd king is the very door by which we enter. That's what this this passage is saying here in, in Micah 2 about this gate, right? In, in, in the old days, back in then, the shepherds, if they would bring people in the sheep, not people, sorry, I'm mixing my analogies here. When the shepherd would bring the sheep, which are the people of God, into the pen, or they would, they would even set up an area where, where sheep, if they didn't have a pen, if they were out in, in the wilderness, where the sheep could kind of be held in in a narrow space, the shepherd would literally lay in the narrow space and be the gate so the sheep would be safe. If you don't know this passage, write this down. If you, have a, if you have a notebook, if you don't have a notebook, write it on your hand, whatever. Look at John 10 and be encouraged. Jesus in John 10 verse 7 says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. He's saying, I'm the shepherd because the shepherd was the door. I'm the one who decides what sheep come in. And then I keep them safe here. And then two verses later, he says, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I'm going to take care of you. Beloved, Jesus, the good shepherd, will protect his sheep from everything that could harm you. Wait a minute, didn't you say that I might still experience harm? Yeah, but that's not real harm. The biggest, most dangerous thing in all of the universe is the righteous judgment of God. And this shepherd says, I will protect you from it, so much so that I will lay my life down for my sheep. Jesus says, fear him, God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell, meaning forever and ever and ever. You might experience persecution, but it's not going to be forever. And that's good news. You might lose your house and be cast off into a foreign land, but the shepherd has you. He died for the sins of his people, for the rebellion, and he rises victorious over sin and death. He lives and he reigns today, keeping them secure in his hand. I give them eternal life, Jesus says, and they will never perish, and no one can snatch them from my hands. And then all the people say with more enthusiasm, Amen. Oh, praise God. 
that we could be part of that remnant. Those sheep who will be brought in. I might lose my life, but that's a moment. My life only has maybe 40 more years. That's nothing. This shepherd has promised me everything. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. His name is Christ, and he gathers us together. He is the salvation. He is the king. And I love that you have this scene right here at the very end. The king passes forward from this gate. Literally, it's being described almost like the Kool-Aid man. And for you who are young enough, you maybe don't know what I'm talking about. It's busting through the wall with victory. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's amazing that the prophet Hosea says... I will conquer not with bow or with sword. And that is exactly how Jesus conquers. Not with bow or sword. He conquers by his death and resurrection. And whatever that enemy is, sin, selfishness, this king has the strength to have victory over that. If you would just trust him. If you would just Lean into him. If you'd stop using him to justify sin and instead go to him to fight it. Those are his sheep. He knows them and they know his voice and they gather after him because he is a good shepherd and he is the very master of all the earth and he will conquer all of it and he will make it new. The faithful remnant will be ushered into a glorious inheritance a far greater promised land than an area in the Middle East. Church, what's your aim? Is it self or is it the most high God? Depending on what your aim is, will decide one of two outcomes. You can continue in rebellion, you can seek after yourself and your pleasures, and you will experience the wrath of God and his righteous right judgment. I pray Pray that if, if you are in that camp, if you are in that group, you would hear it and you would repent. The other outcome is to repent and believe. I pray, I hope, I plead, you will trust in God's great shepherd king. Find the hope that's there, even amidst the trials and tribulations. There is a great promise that will feed you, even when you are suffering, here and now. And then it's just a taste of what this shepherd king has for you. Christian, fight the good fight. Run the race. Trust this shepherd, because he already has you in his hand. Rest in knowing that he has you. Is for your good right here, even amidst all of these things. Christ is working right now for you and for his glory. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray now that your spirit would bring conviction. I don't want any of us, myself included, I don't want any of us, Lord, to feel 
comfortable with self-centered living, with continuing as a, a rebel sinning. But I also don't want any of us to, to maybe ease that by justifying, by misusing scripture, by, by defaming your name and cheapening your grace. Pray that if there are any right now who just want to cast out what I'm saying, they don't want to feel uncomfortable, they want to be told that sin is rebellion, they don't want to think that the God of the universe is holy. I pray again that you would grip them. I pray that they would see that those hands aren't trying to suffocate them, they are trying to draw them in to your true grace. Help them to see the glory of the gospel of Christ Jesus, that the shepherd has come and that he has promised to find us wherever we are and carry us back into the fold. He has promised to bind up the injured sheep and give us the nourishment and care we have. He has promised to bring us all the way home. But to do that, we need to admit that we're sinners. We need to set our eyes again on the glorious gospel of Christ. The shepherd that lays down his life for his sheep. The shepherd that has done everything that is needed. It's not by works, but by the grace found in him and him alone. So let us look forward to the great day when he will come and all the world will bow before this shepherd king. And we, his sheep, will be like a mass of people singing, praising, bleeding out songs of thanks and gratitude for our God, our King, and our Savior. Amen.